So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In the context here, they is referring to the Jews. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So we are coming to the end of a long section from Romans 9, 10, and 11, where he's answering the question that many Gentiles and we today would still have, which is why are so few Jews responding to their Messiah? How come the church is mostly people that are not from Israel? What's going on? And he's given a long discussion of what's gone on and, and their rejection of Jesus and the hardening of the heart. But last week we saw he states in no uncertain terms that God has not cast Israel aside and has not replaced them with the church. He uses that phrase, by no means, which is megenoita in Greek, as in may it never be. What we have learned, and we will learn more fully next week, is that God has hardened Israel's heart as a whole. Matthew 23, 28, Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. Because they crucified the Lord and then they refused to repent and turn to him for salvation. But today we see that that's not the end of God's plan. That's where the plan of God stands now, but it continues and Paul admits that they have stumbled. He's just quoted from the Psalms. He's quoted from the prophets, saying that this was all anticipated. But in verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Meaning, was this failure the last chance for Israel? And he says, by no means. Again, this is actually the last by no means in the book of Romans. He's used this over and over again. One of them was, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid, the old translations say. As in, no, never. He uses that same phrase to say that Israel has not fallen forever. That's important. We have to know this. They have not fallen. And you might say, well, how can you say something like that, Paul? Well, look at what he says. This is so interesting to me. He says, through their trespass, salvation has come. So if their trespass means riches and their failure means riches, how much more their fullness, their full inclusion? He says, their trespass, which was what? Which was crucifying Jesus, rejecting the Messiah, denying him, nailing him to a cross, that trespass. He says, but that trespass as awful and horrible as it was, was the means by which God brought salvation to the world. Maybe you've thought about this before. So how could God judge Pontius Pilate or the Jews for crucifying Jesus if that crucifixion was what needed to happen in order to pay for sins? This is the same idea Paul's picking up here. And this is the same idea that Peter picked up in the book of Acts. The first couple gospel presentations in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and 3, Peter is preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem just after the crucifixion. It's only been a, a short month or two. And he, he gets on them because he said, you crucified the Lord of glory. You took the one God had sent and you nailed him to a tree. But look what he says in Acts 3, 17 and 18. After running through that big, long, blistering attack, he says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. 
But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So he says, this was wrong. You, there's no, make no bones about that. You should not have done this, obviously, right? Should not have done that. But he says, but I know that you were ignorant. If they had truly known who Jesus was, they wouldn't have done this. But he says, this is what God used to fulfill what he had prophesied in the Old Testament. Christ needed to die. There had to be a sacrifice for sin. And while Israel remains responsible for rejecting Jesus, that failure has become the means of salvation for all nations. That's what God can do. God can take the worst thing that has ever happened and make the greatest redemption out of it. The death of Jesus led to the resurrection of Jesus and salvation by grace. And this is a very important perspective to have. That God was using this, just as God used the betrayal of Judas in order to fulfill his purposes. It does not absolve them of responsibility, but God did use it. And so for that reason, Paul does not despair over the Jews. He does not despair over Israel, but he eagerly awaits. Look at these. If, if their trespass, even their sin means blessing for everybody. What's it going to be like when they finally repent? When they're full inclusion. Now, the word inclusion in the ESV there is not included in the Greek. It's a dynamic translation. The word is pleroma. It means fullness. What will their fullness mean? So full inclusion works. It explains what's, what he means here. But this is why Paul does not despair over Israel. I, I find it absolutely impossible to deny a future for the Jews and for the nation of Israel after reading passages like this. It says, if, if their sin, as bad as it was, meant good things for all of us, what's it going to mean when God brings their fullness in? When God restores them, which we'll talk about very shortly here. And he says in verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And that's a theme that Paul's going to pick up. So let's keep reading verses 13 through 16. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So that's me. I don't know if that includes you, but it certainly includes me. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul adjusts his focus and his address here in verse 13. He addresses the Gentiles. And this is going to go on until verse 32, essentially the end of this section. And this is, I think, what Paul wanted to say all along when he wrote this passage. When Paul got into Romans chapter 9, he's laying out the doctrine, but especially in the next following verses, Paul had something he needed to say and correct among these Gentiles. Remember, we talked about this at the very beginning. The Roman church, to which Paul had not visited yet, he's, he's sending this letter so that they can know who he is and know his doctrine. That when he visits, they'll accept him. It was composed of a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, as pretty much all the churches were back then and as they still are today. In AD 49, Claudius Caesar had kicked the Jews out of Rome, out of the city of Rome, because they were having a dispute, history tells us, over a man named Crestus, which is probably a misspelling of the word Christos, which means Christ. So the dispute over Jesus got so hot that 
Claudius Caesar essentially said, all right, y'all get out for a while until you cool off and then you can come back. And this is where Paul met Priscilla and Aquila because they had been kicked out. But the Gentile Christians remained. So during that time, the Gentile church would have thrived and grown in Rome, and they would have gone accustomed to the way they did things. Now, we believe Romans was written in AD 57, so it's approximately eight years later. Somewhere in that time, the Jews had been allowed to return. And it seemed that there was some kind of strife going on here, that the Gentiles were acting arrogantly toward the Jews. At the very least, if that wasn't happening here, it had happened in enough places that Paul knew he needed to address it. That when these Jews came back, they might have said, well, what do we need you guys for? We've been just fine without you. The Jews maybe would have stepped in and tried to take pride of place again, and maybe the Gentiles would have pushed back against that. But he starts to address them, and if you want to give the, the main idea of what we're talking about today is, what kind of attitude ought a Christian to have about Jews? And boy, do we ever need to hear that from the scripture. There are so many weird Christian ideas about Jews that have nothing to do with scripture. They have everything to do with conspiracy theory and everything to do with culture and nothing to do with the Bible. So he affirms, first of all, by saying, yes, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I could see perhaps a Gentile saying something like, well, I mean, look at Paul. Paul was a Jew, but he doesn't do that anymore. Now he just preaches to the Gentiles. So what do we need them? They're done. God's done with Israel. Even Paul gets that. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. And now he's an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul goes, well, yes, I am. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, and I magnify my ministry. Magnify means to make something big, right? I'm trying to expand and grow my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Galatians 2 verse 8 tells us Paul went to the Gentiles. Peter went to the Jews. But he gives a clarifying explanation here because he doesn't want them to be reading into it some sort of anti-Jewish idea. In verse 14, he picks up that word jealous as one of the purposes of his ministry. I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul says, even in my ministry to the Gentiles, in the back of my mind, I've always got this idea that Maybe this will be what it takes to save some of my fellow brothers and sisters, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He seeks to provoke them to salvation. He says, if God can do a magnificent work among the Gentiles, and they begin to turn from their idolatry, and they begin to study the scriptures, which at that time was the Old Testament, right? They begin to study these things and call upon the name of the Lord and put words like hallelujah into their mouth and claim the Messiah and, and honor Jerusalem. He says, and the, the rest of the Jews might see that and grow jealous as in, this is everything we've always wanted. And they're doing it not through us, but through Jesus. Maybe he really is the Messiah. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. It's not that far. It's just a couple pages to your left. Acts chapter 18, we get an example of this. We've studied all the way through the book of Acts. If you'd like to go and check that out on our website, you can follow it verse by verse and get a sense of what Paul's ministry was. But I think in Acts 18, we get a perfect example of what Paul's talking about. This is Acts 18, verse 4, while Paul is in the city of Corinth. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul is preaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. When Silas and Timothy, verse 5, arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 
And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he begins by preaching every week in the synagogue until they had finally just about had enough of Paul. But look at what he says in verse 7. Talk about making the Jews jealous. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. This, that phrase would mean a Gentile who had been worshiping in the synagogue. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul, this is how his ministry worked. He went to the synagogue and he preached and he's arguing from the scriptures, Jesus is the Messiah, born in Bethlehem, raised from the dead on the third day, all that, the son of David. When they finally rejected him, he said, all right, then I'm leaving. I'm moving on. As Jesus told them, shake the dust off your feet and move on. I'm going next to the Gentiles. So he goes to Titius Justice's house next door to the synagogue. That's kind of funny to me a little bit. Well, fine, if I can't be in there, then I'm going to be right here. And he begins to preach. And then the ruler of the synagogue is saved and his whole house. And what would happen in all these cities is all the Gentiles that had been coming to the synagogues would become Christians and go after Paul. And this would lead to riots because the Jews would become envious of Paul. And he's telling them here in Romans, that's my whole ministry. That somebody like Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, will see that all of these Gentiles are turning away from their idols and sins and say, he must be right, because this is exactly what we should have expected. His ministry was to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Every city Paul went to, synagogue was the first stop. Now, we invariably got kicked out except for Berea, but then he would go to the Gentiles afterward. Because he hoped that the Jews would see the fruit and the joy of salvation and desire to share in it. So it was a mistake, if it's what was going on, for these Gentiles to point to Paul as an example of God abandoning the Jews. If even this Pharisee doesn't want anything to do with Jews anymore, he goes, hold on. Don't read too much into the apostle to the Gentiles thing. That's what he's trying to say here. And again, he comes back to his first point. He says, if God chastising Israel is what brought salvation to us all, then what's going to happen when they finally repent and believe? If their rejection means reconciliation, then their acceptance will mean life from the dead. Paul says when they finally accept Christ, that's going to be the day of resurrection. You can see Paul is looking forward to a future for his countrymen according to the flesh. That when they accept the Lord, Paul says, that, that, that's going to be as great as resurrection from the dead. And in fact, that is exactly what the scriptures foretell will happen at the end of days. The Bible describes that in the last seven years, the tribulation, that Israel will be oppressed and beaten down. Zechariah says two-thirds of them will be killed. God will have to hide some of them away in the wilderness. But It's not going to be until the very end when Antichrist is marching on the Jews, as in we're going to finish the job today, that Zechariah prophesies what will happen in that day. Zechariah, I'm going to read chapter 12, verse 10, and chapter 13, verse 1, okay? The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, Isn't that remarkable? Zechariah wrote 450 years before Christ, and he's talking about they will weep over the one that they pierced, 
Crucifixion had not even come to Israel yet. But they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Again, God's only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 13 verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Bible says that when the Antichrist has surrounded the Jews and their end is imminent and their need is dire, that's when God will lift that hardening of heart that we read about in chapter 9 and 10. And it says they will cry out to the Lord. They'll weep like you weep for a firstborn. They'll look on the one whom they pierced and cry out. And God will give them a spirit of repentance in that day. They will realize that this is the moment where we need Messiah to show up. And we nailed Messiah to a cross. So let's cry out and let's call upon Jesus to save us. And that's what's going to happen. That's when God will lift that. And that in the book of Revelation is Revelation 19. When it says the heavens opened and there sat one upon a white horse. And he comes forth with righteousness to make war and defend his people. So that actually, I know Paul is saying it uh, almost in passing here. By saying their acceptance will mean life from the dead. That is the moment that the Bible describes when the resurrection will take place. Isn't that cool? And we're looking forward to this, that the kingdom will come in that moment. So verse 16 affirms all of that, that if the dough is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul says, look, God began this work with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and the covenant that he made. That is still holy. And the the root is never going to dry up and shrivel up. One day, God will restore and redeem his people. And next week, we'll look at this in great detail. And and this is why he describes the church as God's ministry of provocation toward the Jews. You ever thought of yourself that way, if you're a Gentile? That God is using you. Of course, he loves you for you. But one of the reasons he saved you is to make his chosen people jealous. To provoke them. To kind of prod them a little bit. So don't you want some of that joy? Don't you wish you had some of that? That's what the Lord is doing. As, we, as they see us carry their scriptures and carry their God's name with joy and with peace and with Christian love, as we insist upon what the scriptures say, that it's provoking. It's provoking to love and to good works. The Bible says we ought to provoke one another to love and good works. God is using the church to provoke his people, to set them up. For the day when they will all be saved, but also so that he, as Paul said, might save the individual. Right? Just because the nation as a whole has had its heart hardened, that of course does not mean that there is not a remnant of Jews that are saved every day. I pray for a revival among the nation of Israel and New York City and the other places where the the Jewish population is enormous every day. We ought to pray for that. And so Paul tells them, look, God's not done with them, and neither am I, so don't, don't hang your hat on me as the apostle to the Gentiles. We're looking forward to their future. Now in verse 17 is when Paul gets down to brass tacks. And this is the lesson we've got to learn today. But if some of the branches were broken off, carrying on that image of a tree with the root and the branches, right? If some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Might want to underline that one. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. 
Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Immediately, we can see an objection to Paul's reference to the root. He said, if the root is holy, then the branches are holy. He said, well, hold on a minute. If Israel is this olive tree we're talking about, all those branches were broken off. They've been hardened. They're in rebellion. They're under judgment from the Lord. All of that is true. So how can you say that the, the root is still holy? Paul's like, I get what you're saying, but let me look at this a little different way. He says, yes, the majority of Israel has been broken off, and only a remnant remains. That's chapter 10, laying out that there is a remnant. And that salvation is now extended to the wild Gentiles. That's me. He says, you're grafted in. It's, it's like husbandry. You take a branch that was not originally part of this tree, and you tie it on, and you allow it to come together. He says, y'all were not cultivated olive trees in God's garden. He pulled you from the, the woods, and he broke off some of those branches and grafted you on. And he's trying to paint a picture for them here. He says, so you have no right to be arrogant towards the branches, towards the tree. He says, if you know that Israel has a future, he admonishes us as Gentiles, if you are one of those, to not be arrogant towards the Jews. He says, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. He says, well, if it wasn't for me, they couldn't be saved. Uh, the opposite of that is true. If it wasn't for them, you could not be saved. There's no room for arrogance. Any idea of superiority or supremacy against the Jews, except in matters of salvation by faith, is entirely unwarranted biblically. I don't see how you can read the Bible that most of it was written in Hebrew, the rest of it was written to and about the Jews, to then say, well, God must be done with them, and that makes us way better than them. That's not what the Bible says. You use words like Christ, which means Messiah, which is a Hebrew word. You use words like hallelujah, which is a Hebrew word that means praise the Lord. We name our kids things like Samuel and Jacob and Isaac and David. Those are Hebrew names. We stand on that foundation. He warns those who think that way to remember, you're only here because of them. So your attitude better be one of humility. He said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it means to be a Gentile. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've got to remember that. We're only here because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. We can never forget that. We can never think that somehow we have transcended what God did for them. We are living in the fulfillment of what God promised them. So to then look around at those that are walking in a lack of faith and be arrogant towards them and be boastful or even oppressive and abusive toward them, that's not right. 
They say, wait a minute, but God got rid of them for me. Doesn't that make me so special? <laughs> God got rid of the, of the Jews so that he could bring in Gentiles. No. Paul reminds us why that happened. Paul has a really good way of doing this. If somebody comes in with an objection, and he says, you're looking at it wrong. It's not that God broke them off for you. He says, let's take a look at why God broke off those unfaithful branches in the first place. Because they lacked faith. It wasn't because God goes, man, I hate the Jews. Get rid of them. It's because they did not believe in Christ Jesus. And you were grafted in because you believed in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, rather than being proud, you ought to be afraid. That doesn't sound like us, does it? You ought to be afraid to fear because we face the same danger. If God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. He says, when the moment came for them to believe, they failed to believe. So they were broken off. You were grafted in because you believed. But if you someday walk away from that faith and renounce it and don't continue in it, you ought to be afraid too. Because if God was willing to break off some of his chosen people, you're just a Gentile. You're just some American. They didn't even know our country existed back in the days Paul was writing this. So why do we get so uppity? That's what Paul's saying. That's why you can't think about salvation in terms of categories. This is not good. Like, okay, we got the Jew category and we got the Gentile category. We got the male category and we got the female category. We got the slave category and we got the free category. Because when it comes to the gospel, none of that matters. None of it. Because salvation, as we have learned at length in the book of Romans, is by grace through faith. It's a gift received by belief. And so often we come to it and we start thinking about things in terms of ethnicity or country or culture. When Galatians 3.7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you want a piece of this blessing called salvation, it's through faith, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. And Paul tells them to have the proper attitude. And I want to look at two of these real quick here. Two, let's say, unbalanced attitude towards the Jews and towards Israel that Christians can have. And the first one is, you could call it an overly positive view. These are Christians who idolize the Jews and idolize Israel. They see them as infallible. If they want to know what the Bible says, they want to know what the Jews say about it, and then that's the end of it for them. These are people that don't even like us using words that have been anglicized. We ought to use the Hebrew words. I don't like us saying Christ. We ought to say Messiah because that's the original word. Never mind that the New Testament says Christ and that's fine. We shouldn't call him Jesus. We should call him Yeshua because that's what they would have called him. Hey, if you want to call him that, knock yourself out. That's what the Aramaic was. But as if there's something more spiritual in doing it in a Hebraic way than doing it in a Gentile way, even though it's the same thing. There are those that will... Look at the nation of Israel, and there's nothing that Israel could possibly do wrong. And we want to look at what the Messianic Christians have to say. Regardless of how long they've been saved, if you were a Jew and now you've been saved, we want you to sit and teach us. We idolize even the traditions that Jesus came to break apart when he came. That we ought to do things like celebrate Hanukkah in the church. Is there anything wrong with that? No, but what does that have to do with Christ Jesus? Does it make you more holy, make you more spiritual, more saved? Certainly not. There are some, and I'm not making this up, I have known people, sat across the table and discussed with people who have ended up renouncing the faith because they were chasing their so-called Hebrew roots and ended up abandoning Jesus. They, they begin to say things like, it starts out fairly innocuous, like, well, 
you know, the Sabbath day was on Saturday. Why don't we worship on Saturday? And you say, well, the early church began to worship on Sunday because, first of all, a lot of the Jews would go to synagogue on Saturday, and Sunday was the day Jesus rose from the dead. That's from the earliest days of the church. We know that. I, just, I really would feel more comfortable we did it on Saturday. Well, go for it, pal. No one's going to stop you from worshiping on Saturday. But then it grows from that to if you don't worship on Saturday, I don't know if you're in sin, but it's not as spiritual as me. You're not as accurate as me. And you start to look down your nose at people and you start to say things like, you know, we really are not paying enough attention to the feasts and to the law. Now, Paul said, don't let anybody cast judgment on you because of those things. I'm not judging anybody. I just, I'm not going to eat these things anymore. And I'm going to keep the festivals and none of them ever do. Nobody ever goes to Jerusalem, makes a hut once a year and lives in it. But, you know, I keep the feasts and everything. And then it becomes, if you don't do these things, you're sinful. And then it gets to the place where you say, the New Testament is all wrong. Because you spend all your time learning from Jews whose entire doctrine revolves around rejecting Christ as Messiah. We love them and we pray for them, we care for them, but when it comes to matters of salvation, they are colossally wrong. They are dangerously wrong. They are under judgment from the Lord still. And if you want to get into some of that, that I, it's almost feel like a costume sometimes. If that's what you want to do, fine. You know, if you want to pronounce the hard chet in all of the Hebrew words, you know what, knock yourself out. I don't care about that. But we cannot hold up any Christian higher than ourselves for any reason other than maturity in Christ and faithfulness to the word of God. This is a problem that's happening in Old Testament studies today where folks don't even want to look at what the scriptures say. They want to look at what the Jewish traditions say, which is remarkable because, again, Jesus came and did not have much time for the Jewish traditions. Do you remember that? So that's, that's an overly positive view. But then there's the overly negative view. This is the group that becomes proud and does exactly what Paul said not to do and despises the Jews. The Jews must be stopped. The Jews have, have rejected Jesus and they're continuing to fight against us, so we've got to stop them. We've got to ridicule them. There are, every single cult seems to have some thought that they're really Israel now. Mormons believe that. The black Hebrew Israelites believe that. There's all, every kind of group that gets aberrant in their doctrine tries to pick up the mantle of the lost tribes of Israel. The lost tribes of Israel are living in Israel right now. It's the Jews. It's just Jews. It's not complicated. But if you've got some sort of weird ethnic cultural problem with Jews, then you're going to try to find some weird theory that will allow you to cast them to the side and ignore what Paul says so plainly right here. Anti-Semitism comes from lots of different directions. It comes from the left when people say things like, they're oppressing the Palestinians and we've got to get rid of them. And Judeo-Christian heritage needs to be broken down. So that's not just the church, but that's the Jews also. And we can't let them be pushing religion on us or these ideas on us. But it also comes from the right. And most of y'all are right-wingers like me in here. So you need to hear this. When nationalism, being proud and patriotic of your country, leads to the point where you start to say, and these people that care more about their God and their culture and their Bible than ours, we got to do something about them. That's a dangerous road that we've walked before. And as, as things begin to polarize and we get pulled because we want to stand for our nation, we want to stand for our country and reject people that are trying to change it and all that, you can end up meeting people along that road that have some very wicked ideas about Jews. You need to be a believer first and know what's right. 
Watch out for that stuff. Because it starts out so innocuously. Israel has a future redemption awaiting them. We're praying for that. We're hoping for that. So how can we hate these people? But they're also under judgment from the Lord until such time as he sees fit to restore them. So how can we idolize them and lift them up above what our Lord Jesus himself has said? The book of Galatians was written to Gentiles that were starting to dabble in Jewish stuff to be more saved. And Paul called them stupid. Go read it. You foolish Galatians. That's our very, you know, sanitized. You idiots. You think you're going to get saved? This was early Paul. This is like young Paul before he kind of grew up a little bit. And then the book of Hebrews was written to Jews who had been saved and yet were tempted to go back to the things of the law. And his whole thing is that Jesus is better. Don't go back. We've got to remember both of those things. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or Gentile. There is a specific mandate in Scripture to be humble towards the Jews. So, fellas, ladies, search your hearts. Are you obeying that command from Scripture, or do you have a million reasons why you are somehow excused from these things? Verse 22. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Underline it, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? How can you read the New Testament and believe anything other than God still has a plan and a hope for his people, the Jews? He draws our attention here to the character of God. Two things, the kindness and the severity of God. That's a really great way of balancing the character of the Lord, I think. Kindness and severity. We often say love and justice, or kindness and wrath. But kindness and severity is a good word. You ever have a severe teacher or a severe boss? God was indeed severe to Israel in hardening their hearts. He gave them space to repent, but Jesus told them before they had even crucified him, that your house is left to you desolate. You missed your day, and I know what you're about to do, so I'm ready to harden your hearts. But he was kind to the Gentiles in his grace. You know, maybe you don't know where, where you came from, like what your motherland would be, but well, we know some of the stuff that our ancestors did. My, my ancestors were worshiping rocks and drinking blood and sacrificing children, and God came in and offered them salvation. That's kindness. That's more kindness than we would like God to have. God shows kindness around the world to this day, to the Gentiles. Yet, those, Paul says, who do not continue in that kindness, meaning to use a common term, those who fall away will have to face the severity of God. The severity of God that was willing to break off most of the natural branches of the tree. While Israel, again, will see his kindness. 
Because it says God has the power to graft them in again. And as we read, we believe God will do just that one day. We're going to look at that in in more detail next week. We actually spent a lot of time talking about it at the Prophecy Conference. You can go check that out online. We had a study called The Desolation of Israel that laid this out in detail. So because of that, because God has a plan to redeem them, because we ought to continue, those who are grafted in have to continue in kindness with fear. This passage is so similar to Ezekiel 33. I am inclined to think Paul might have had it in mind as he was writing it. Ezekiel prophesied in uh, the land of Babylon when they had been exiled. And in Ezekiel 33, 17, he's addressing those Jews who said that God was not fair for sending them into exile. Nobody ever thinks God was fair when he judges them. It's always fair when he judges somebody else, right? Well, they were walking in sin, so they got what they deserved. But look what he says in Ezekiel 33, 17 through 20. Your people say, the way of the Lord is not just. When it's their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. God, do you think I'm not fair? If If you're walking in sin and you repent... I'll forgive you. But if you're walking in righteousness and then you fall away into sin, I'm not going to overlook that. And Paul says the same thing here. that The severity and the kindness of God are both at work and ought to compel us to walk forward with fear and trembling. However you want to slice it, however you want to doctrinally lay it out, we are commanded in the Bible to continue in the faith. Jesus said, abide in me. The word for abide is meno. It means to stay, to remain, to continue. When he says abide with me, he says stay here. Don't go anywhere. Don't wander. Don't stray. Stick with me. And the word that Paul uses for those who continue is a derivative of that word. It's epimeno. It's the same idea. And Jesus said every branch that does not abide in me will be cut off and thrown into the fire. To abide and to press on. And if you, as a Christian, in the church, do not abide in Christ, do not continue in the faith, continue in righteousness, there are dire biblical threats hanging over your head. The temptation that we fall into, ironically enough, is to be just like the Jews of Jesus' day and Paul's day, and to rest in our status for salvation, not our faith. I'm a Christian. Therefore, I'm good to go. Well, what is that? What is a Christian? It's not somebody that goes to church and watches Veggie Tales and votes the right way. A Christian is somebody who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received his grace for salvation. So you can do all that other stuff, but if you have not done that, whatever you are, you're not a Christian. Jesus said that there would be many, many in the last day that will come to him and say, Lord, it's me. You know me. I did all these wonderful things for you. I served in children's ministry and I helped out at the events and I read my Bible and I told people what the Bible said. What about me? And he says, the Lord will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Many. Does that put a little tremor into your heart? It should. It's intended to. 
It's supposed to scare you a little bit and allow that fear to push you closer to Christ. So then I'm, then I'm sticking right here. I'm not, I'm not messing around then, if that's the case. Do we see the severity of God for others and yet only kindness for ourselves? Are we that foolish? Well, God's not going to show his wrath to me because, I mean, look at me. I'm wonderful. Everybody likes me. Even in this section, I mean, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is some of the strongest words about election and sovereignty and predestination in the Bible. And yet, even here, Paul is calling us to continue. And if you don't continue, you'll be broken off. There's a call to perseverance, to obedience, to faithfulness. There is no room for lazy Christianity. There's no room for laziness when it comes to the things of God. So I'm going to ask you today, and this is going to be our main point of application to take home, especially if you've been critical of God's chosen people, as Paul rebuked these Gentiles for. Are you continuing? Are you continuing along the path that maybe you can talk about the day you started on that road, the day you were saved, the day you walked down the aisle? Wonderful. I'm so glad you have that. Have you continued? Have you kept going? Or are you trying to live off the stories from yesterday? Have you let yourself slide in your obedience? How many Christians have I met who were on fire for the Lord when they were young, and then they get a little older, they start to look at normal life and be hungry for it, and so they say that Christian maturity is learning that you don't need to be that zealous all the time. Why do you think God always calls so many young people? Because they'll listen to his radical demands. The Lord has called us to be radical. Consider everybody that came to Jesus. Lord, I'll follow you. He says, I'm going to find the one thing that you refuse to do and make that thing you, the thing you have to do to be saved and follow me. That's what Christianity is. That's what following Christ is. We really believe this stuff, do we not? We're not just doing this because it's the thing that we do. We can't just do it because we're Americans or because we're Southerners or any of that. We have to do it because it's true. Because it's real. And when everybody else begins to drift from this, you say, I'm sorry, I can't go with you. You sang it all the time when you were growing up. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Are you following? Are you following? Or are you just kind of drifting? You know, if you're in a river and you stop swimming, you're going to drift away, aren't you? You never just go, well, that's where I need to go, but if I just let the river take me, I'm sure I'll get there. You expect it to take you all the way around the world and bring you back? Abide, continue. 2 Peter 1 verse 10 says, Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. I don't believe we can do anything to confirm our calling. Well, that's what Peter said, all right? Splice it however you want. Are you obeying that verse? How about the commandments that we talked about not too long ago on Palm Sunday? Jesus' commandments to love each other. Have you started to consider those as optional for yourself? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you do that? Or is it all about you? And if it is all about you and you couldn't care less about your neighbor, how do you call yourself a Christian? Jesus said, if anyone strikes you on the one cheek, let him hit the other one too. Do you do that? Or have you made a virtue out of responding to those people that hurt you and insult you? Jesus said, rejoice when they insult you and revile you and call you all kinds of wicked things and falsely accuse you for my name's sake. Do you do that or do you lock and load, baby, because it's time to go? 
Jesus said, if you do not forgive, I'm not going to forgive you. Are you holding on to bitterness? Have you failed to forgive? Then in what meaningful sense are you actually a Christian? Well, I love Jesus. I love everything he had to say. No, you don't. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And Jesus said, love your enemies. Do you love your enemies? Well, if they ever show up, I'll do my best. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, get your heart right now. Start loving them today. Are you walking in kindness? Well, kindness is, is a womanly virtue. No, it's not. It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. You know, there's all sorts of vile sins I could bring up that we could be walking in. We could talk about aberrant sexuality. We could talk about greed. We could talk about violence and all that. Yeah, don't do any of that either. But in my experience, most Christians are struggling with those basic things more than the big stuff. We don't feel like we need to be saved. We don't feel like we need to continue because I'm not doing anything grievous. Those things are grievous. Failure to love is a grievous thing. John said, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Well, no, no, the truth is in me. I know because I believed and I, I, I had my day. Not according to scripture. Have you thrown everything at Jesus' feet? Are you continuing because Paul holds it up as a warning that the Jews, the chosen ones with Moses and the covenants and David and the holy place and the temple, that they, when they sinned, were broken off. Now you were grafted in because of kindness, but shouldn't that ought to make you careful that I'm not going to let myself drift into this stuff? I'm not going to renounce something when I was young and getting saved, and now I get older and I'm nostalgic for the good old days, so I'm starting to dabble in it again? That's not Christianity, whatever you call it. Today's your day to come back to the Lord. We're so good. And when we feel the, the thump in our heart of God speaking to us, immediately finding something that's going to comfort us and make us feel better and move on, rather than responding to the voice of the Spirit saying, it's time to be done with that. It's time to be done with porn. How old are you? You're my disciple. Don't do that stuff. It's time to be done with getting drunk on the weekends. I don't care what your buddies are doing. It's time to clean up your language. I don't care if it's for a good cause. Time to start loving people. Lord, I'm so angry at them. Then get on your knees and pray for them until you can weep over them. That's what Jesus did for you. The kindness of God is made to lead us to repentance. That was Romans 2 verse 4. Don't make the same mistake Israel made. We can sit here and theologize and talk about what they did wrong, what God will do for them someday. But Paul reminds us, don't you fall into the same thing. If we're disciples, we're walking closely behind Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, people of prayer, people of the book, people of holiness, people who take the gospel around the world, people who take the opportunities that are placed in front of them to obey Christ and not to allow ourselves to fit it in somewhere. You think God would allow himself to be fit in somewhere? Well, I have to break some things. My schedule would have to break. My, I might not make as much money. Oh, the Lord would be so pleased by that, Christian. Look, they're willing to die for me. They're willing to have less of a life for me. That's how I know that they truly believe me. We come to the end of this sharp rebuke from Paul against arrogating ourselves against Israel. God has a plan for them that can never be altered. Jeremiah said, if, if you can change God's plan for the sun, the moon, and the stars, you can change his plan for Israel. Yeah. 
Yes, they've been hardened for a time. But next week we're going to see their salvation draws near. And who knows if we might not be one of those Gentile churches that God uses to provoke them to jealousy and salvation. I hope that that's what our ministry exactly becomes. And for ourselves, let us not be lazy. Lazy Christians. Lazy in our our worship. Lazy in our zeal. Lazy in our ministry. Press on toward the goal. You've been given a second chance. God chose one nation out of the whole world and it wasn't yours unless you're a Jew. I'll put it this way. He chose one nation out of the whole world and it wasn't mine. We were on a different continent somewhere. But God said, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to save them. And I'm going to make some of them preachers of my gospel. I'm going to hold them up and we're going to see. They won't even remember the names of the old gods they used to worship because it was so long ago. And now all I know is Jesus and his word. But press on. Because if you stop pressing on, you're going to get pulled back. So if you've got to make some changes today, y'all make some changes. This isn't complicated. This is you getting on your knees and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. And then getting in the car with your wife or your kids. All right, we've got to make some changes. Dad, lead the family. This is what we've got to do. We're following Jesus. We're going to do it. The Bible says to the, the church in the book of Revelation, it said, repent and do the former things. Go back and do what you used to do. Oh, I used to be so much more enthusiastic for Jesus. All right, well, what were you doing then? What was your life like? Were you reading more? Were you praying more? Were you coming to church more? Were you evangelizing more? Well, go back and do that stuff. And you'll see that the zeal will return. Because this is, this is your chance. God's holding this out and saying, come on back. I want to do great things through you. God's going to do great things through this church. I firmly believe that. And God has brought all of us here so that we can all be a part of that. So that we can reach out to the schools and to the prisons and to the pregnancy centers. That we're not just going to stand and be mad about all the right things. But we're going to get out and do the work and help people and see people saved out of those things. And in the midst of those things. So there's no time. There's no time for laziness. There's no time for sloth. There's no time for the old habits that we know we've got to kick someday. Today's the day. I've been saying someday, today's the day. If that's a word from the Lord for you, then receive it as such. Because we have been grafted in, but we must continue and trust that the Lord will be faithful to forgive us when we turn and we repent.